Our company is not set up to be a technology company. We're really about the content. So we need the website to be something that can evolve and grow with us and be something that's very extensible without a developer jumping in and having to make changes. Hello and welcome to We Make the Internet. My name is Steve Persh. I'm the Director of Technical Marketing here at Pantheon, the platform for extraordinary websites. And extraordinary websites are made by extraordinary teams. On this podcast, we'll look at the team sport dynamics of website operations. Now in the 2020s, it takes collaboration between increasingly specialized skill sets to design, build, and iterate upon thriving websites. How do the best in the business make that collaboration real? How can a web team reach shared goals together? Every website has a job to do, and on this podcast, we'll explore how that job gets done, one team at a time. Today, I'm happy to be talking with Isa and Andrew. Isa Ann Stamos is the Senior Director of Systems and Technology at GreenBiz, a media and events company that accelerates the just transition to a clean economy, and Andrew Malice, CEO and co-founder of Kalamuna, a digital agency focused on, among other things, leaving this earth better than we found it. Isa and Andrew have had a years-long partnership focused on greenbiz.com. Welcome, Isa. Hi. Isa, we're so happy to have you here, and Andrew as well. Hello to you. Hi. So to get into it here, Isa, I'd like to hear some of the backstory on GreenBiz as an organization. And now that you've been with GreenBiz for a few years, what first attracted you to working with an organization like GreenBiz? I mean, GreenBiz started out as just an online newsletter that then became a full-blown website with resources for sustainability professionals. And we also have events executive peer networks. And yeah, we have a lot of content. And my attraction to GreenBiz was I came from video games with a software development background. But I was really interested in something that was more related to the environment and was really excited to join GreenBiz and bring what knowledge I have of software development into this space. And can you speak to the role that GreenBiz.com has within you know, the organization. At Pantheon, we like to say every website has a job to do. What's the job or, or perhaps many jobs of greenbiz.com? Well, I mean, greenbiz.com is, you know, we have an editorial staff that writes amazing articles and content that really get to the bottom of the sustainability profession and what is the latest in climate technology across a lot of different topics. But we also do webcasts and we have events and reports and everything. But greenbiz.com is the center for all of that. Whether it is people who just want to read our contents or if they want to join us at one of our events, if they want to actually work with us and partner with us in publishing, they can do that too. So it's the hub, really. Everything that we do relates back to greenbiz.com in some way. Sure. And Andrew, let's bring you into the conversation as well. As Andrew, I think your history with GreenBiz goes back even a bit further, Kalamuna's relationship working with GreenBiz as an institution. We started working with GreenBiz in uh, 2012, I think, and some time ago. And we've both grown tremendously as organizations go and and grown together. And that sort of spirit of partnership you know, continues to this day. Actually, a funny story. Before Issa came on, I was 
asked to interview her as part of our trusted partnership. And of course, you know, I immediately told them that they should look no further because I couldn't imagine a better fit and a better uh, collaborator for the work that we're doing and continue to do today. And what gave you that first impression, that strong sense that ESA was the right person to lead initiatives within Green Biz related to the website? She didn't have extensive like website production experience at the time. And one might think that would work against her, but her mind was so well attuned to the complexity of systems and the connection between you know, creative endeavors and the technical realization of those aspirations, how to negotiate that space and keep senior stakeholders, business interests aligned. And that's really you know, the core of what we really need from a strong product owner is someone who can walk that fine line, you know, communicate with the teams, understand the realities day to day that developers are facing and struggling with, be a strong communicator and be able to translate, you know, in both directions, the business priorities and the development priorities. And I knew, you know, without a doubt that it would be in really short order that ESO would understand Drupal and, and other underlying technologies, at least, you know, enough for us to be bringing, you know, the best of all of our attributes to the table as one team. Yeah, I imagine that you know, coming from the world of game development, Isa, there probably was a, a learning curve with Drupal, but video games are extraordinarily complex. And do you find yourself applying lessons you learned or skills you developed in that sphere within the web world? Yeah, absolutely. As a product owner, I'm really kind of in between the development team and my organization. When I'm talking to the development team, I want to make sure that they're totally clear on what it is we need to build. But at the same time, each feature can be really complex. So I have to make sure that there isn't feature creep, you know, and that we start getting, you know, a little too excited and start adding things to the table. And when I'm talking to stakeholders at GreenBiz and really trying to let them understand what's possible now, what could be possible later. And then that it's not always like, no, we can't do that. It's a, well, let's see how we can get there. But, you know, there's a lot that we've learned from Kalamuna. A lot of times will, it's more effective sometimes for me to present an issue to Kalamuna and say, hey, this is the problem that we want to solve. Let's talk about the various ways that that could happen, as opposed to just me dictating, I want it like this. It's definitely much more of a partnership because they have the technical knowledge. You know, like my assumptions about what the best approach is might not always be right. That's great to hear that you're working bigger than that mode of product owner or product manager dictating to the technical team how it's got to be. That's often the working relationship that I was in in previous jobs, working either as a freelancer or an agency role. I wonder if we could draw more details on what that change looks like in practice. If years ago or in other working relationships, Andrew, there was perhaps that mentality of a product owner or product manager just wants it to work like this get the job done. How do you get out of that mode as a team where you're getting beyond just feature doneness? That's a really great question. And it's certainly one that we're interested in answering in a variety of circumstances, because I know that any team can do their best work if we're all you know, bringing something to the table and creating outcomes and can be more than the sum of our parts, right? And if there's more of a lateral relationship where it's like, here, do things, throw it over the wall, 
This is what we often refer to as like a vendor relationship. You know, we don't have a vending machine out of which we can pull solutions necessarily. So there's some amount of translation that's always happening here to try to reform those relationships. The easiest way to get out of them is potentially to avoid them and seek out those relationships where they're the language of vendors and task takers isn't as prevalent, but that's not always the case. There's institutional change and reform that's possible. And for the types of organizations that we work with, you know, we want to see them succeed. And if there's an opportunity to change that culture internally, as we saw with GreenBiz, we want to take that and invest in that opportunity. So in GreenBiz's case, before ESA came along, the relationship was a little bit more like that. And it was based in a historical context. The agency before us you know, had built a website. There were a lot of issues with the technology choices and the usability. And there were a lot of bugs. And so they had developed this kind of bug-fixing-based task routine, where it's like, here's all the things to do. This, this, this. Oh, we're finding more things. Add more to the pile. And so they were always sort of playing catch-up. To escape that, you know, strategy is really important. Getting ahead of things, planning ahead is really what's going to open those doors. But ultimately, it comes right down to that product owner relationship and how strong that is and how strongly the role is understood. And also, you know, strong lines of communication and role definition. It really unlocked a lot more possibility, imagination, and innovation. Isa, I'd love to hear more about that budget side of the story from your perspective. Yeah, I think that the first step was really just trying to drive home the point that the website is not just this tech project that we do and then we're done. That it is literally the packaging for our products and we need to evolve it as we innovate with our editorial products, with our events, et cetera. And once we understood that and just said, look, we're always going to need to be doing maintenance work on this site. We should look at that having a maintenance budget so we can make sure that the site is performant and really delivering with all the features. But then we should think about a separate budget, which we call capitalized projects, And that is something that we plan out. We say, okay, what is the next cool big thing that we want to build? Maybe it's just a small thing. Maybe it's just one new feature. Maybe we want to redesign part of the site. Maybe we need to migrate from one version of Drupal to the other. Like, what is the big, big project? And so on an annual basis, we're actually creating these capitalized projects that have a purpose. So for instance, maybe the project is, hey, let's overhaul our analytics. Or it's, hey, let's redesign our event microsites. Okay, we'll do that. But that is separate. And the nice thing about those capitalized budgets is that our finance team was excited about that because they're capitalized. It's considered an investment and it can be amortized over a longer period of time. And so it really, really helps them manage that. Also, when I am focused on a capitalized project, they can actually take a portion of my salary and handle it that way as well. So it really just kind of helps us manage you know, the finances of this continual development. And because we're planning exactly what we want to build every year, we can change our minds. Sometimes we'll propose something and then we'll decide, well, we can't really take that on this year, but we'll have that in our back pocket the next time we want to bring it around. And that's actually really, really helped us. And with Kalamuna, it's been great because they've been very accommodating and 
I actually have two different standups. I have one where we talk about maintenance issues and one where we talk about the current project. And in some cases, we did an SEO project, for example. Kalamuna brought in a consultant and we worked, I'm still working with this person on that. So if it's not an area that they have, you know, the bandwidth on their team or they just want to pull in that extra expertise and we have a capitalized project, that's how we run it. And it's been really effective about keeping our stakeholders engaged with, hey, what is the new cool thing we're adding to the site? Instead of constantly telling them about all the bugs we fixed, <laughs> they, like, they like the new features. <laughs> I wonder if you could give an example of one or more specific things that you were able to bring back to those leaders and say, we made this bet and here's how you can see it work. Maybe the pop-ups? Yeah, I would say that that's a dis- nice, discrete example of the feature that we added to our main site. They're essentially pop-up calls to action or ads that promote our events. And it's tied to taxonomy. So we've got like 30,000 articles on greenbiz.com. And all these articles are tagged. So if we associate a pop-up ad with a term like renewable energy or carbon sequestration, then if a person is reading an article that is tagged with that topic, after you know a certain amount of time, they're going to see a pop-up about our event that relates exactly to that topic. Because we have multiple events throughout the year and there's always some upcoming event. And so we can tune that. And that's been fantastic to get people to finish reading out that article and go over to our event website and register. That's trying to bridge the gap between our editorial and our event content. Yeah, I think that ties really well to the idea that websites have a job to do. And if part of the job here is directing interest towards those events, towards taking an action like registering for an in-person or or virtual event, Mm -hmm. figuring out, okay, how exactly are people going to find their way to registering these events? I am curious, when it comes to pop-ups, how do you know that you are not annoying the visitors to your websites with too many pop-ups? Not sure if we do know that, but we've not gotten any complaints and we've seen, so we, you know, of course, we're using analytics to track how many times our pop-ups are being clicked on and how often that leads to somebody registering for an event. And that's just, it's gone up. They're proving to be effective and we're not seeing much negative fallout from it. But I do worry about that sometimes, but overall... Our site does not have a lot of ads, does not have a lot of intrusive animating things to distract you from the content. So I think our users are allowing us this one gimme to (laughs) to get them. That's good. You're able to make a change that drove a specific outcome and it didn't have many or any negative externalities. I've often heard the term sustainable come up both in the context of the ecological sense that Green Biz as an institution is very much focused on. I've also heard references to a sustainable way of making a website. What does it mean for a website to be sustainable? Well, I feel like I can answer that question in terms of, you know, our company is not set up to be a technology company. We're really about the content. So we need the website to be something that can evolve and grow with us. 
and be something that's very extensible without a developer jumping in and having to make changes. So we have a lot of people editing on the site and we're using the site. So I feel like that's really sustainable and that maintenance is you know very manageable with these sites. And so making sure that that's sustainable, that's the part that's really important to me. Another like example would be we have a content type on our site that is an event microsite. And, you know, during the pandemic, we needed to switch immediately from in-person events to online events and also increase the number of events and do all these things. And our system for creating these event microsites turned out to be very robust. And we were able to do what we needed to do without any major feature ads or redesign. And so that's what I would think is sustainable is that the site that we have is extendable enough now that we can innovate on our products without a lot of intervention. And then when we have time and we want to really redesign for the new slew of products that we've developed, well, then we can go ahead and optimize that. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's what I think of when I think of sustainability. That's sustainability and extensibility are not like interchangeable. But if the system isn't extensible enough, Mm-hmm. then you end up grafting a bunch of features that make the website unsustainable, ultimately. Yeah. Like fall under you know, the own weight that it's created. And you know, it's a little bit ironic in some ways to talk about websites being sustainable because the technology moves so quickly. And it feels like our websites are always out of date. And you know, we're never really catching up. And there's so much we wish we could do, but we can't do. If the technology is in the way of that, then it isn't doing its job. It's not amplifying. It's not empowering an organization. It's not helping them achieve their goals. It's kind of weighing things down. And that ends up you know, often getting you know, mirrored in the choices day-to-day that are made to keep things running. I wonder how the Drupal versions connect in here. Andrew, you were talking about that pace of change difficulty. There was a time in Drupal history where new major versions of Drupal would come out every one, two, three years. And the mode of operating that I was in at the time, and I imagine you might have been in as well, was, well, Drupal 6 is out. We'll throw away the Drupal 5 site, rebuild it all, and end up with something very similar and maybe not that much better. Now, in the Drupal 8, 9, 10 era, there's less of that throw it away mentality. How has that played out for GreenBiz? When we were doing the migration from Drupal 6 to Drupal 7, this did come into play. You know, you have to think about what you're going to keep, what you're going to rebuild, what you're going to migrate. And in some cases, you know, there were very complex data architectures, the events websites, we were going to rebuild another website approach to events. And that's still active today, but it's been able to sustain the business and adapt over time through some smaller redesigns. But before we got to it, there was a legacy of past events. And rather than try and shoehorn them into a new model or rebuild them, we ended up just you know, scraping the output of the system and parking it as you know, static representations of those past events in order to be unencumbered from the legacy of how they were built. Like why put a whole bunch of tools in place in a new system to recreate patterns that weren't going to persist? Isa, earlier you were talking about techniques and tactics for 
getting the buy-in and participation of senior leadership within GreenBiz. What else are you doing day-to-day to bring in involvement or some level of ownership from your more direct peers in the organization? What works well for getting others within GreenBiz to take some action, take some ownership to move the website forward? Yeah, I think that it really does. We're a small organization, but even within that, there's sort of cohorts that care about different things. What I usually do is identify key stakeholders for any capitalized projects. So if we're going to be doing a redesign or like we're going to explore what we need to improve for our SEO, then I identify those stakeholders and then have them kind of commit to working with me on the details around that project. And different cohorts care about different things. There are some that they just want to see traffic on the site be increased and they want more newsletter subscriptions, you know, to happen or event registrations or sponsorships. Others are working to update content on the site. So they're much more interested in, well, can we make this workflow easier? They need to understand, a lot of times people need to understand the purpose behind everything. Like, why do we have to fill everything out and do things a certain way for SEO? Having a better understanding of the purpose of that really helps. So I just try and engage folks on, hey, the problem that we're trying to solve is getting more people to the site. Here are the different ways that we can approach that. Zeroing in on, we have all this organic traffic that people are getting to our site through search engines, but how? You know, Really diving into it and then translating that into exact things that we can do on the site to improve it. Of course. Andrew, I'd like to hear some of what makes Issa a great coworker or collaborator. Like, What does she do that you wish potentially others you work with did on a regular basis? Well, she asks lots of questions, which is great. Sometimes things don't go the way we would all like, but she never you know, huffs and puffs and stomps her feet and runs out of the room. There's always the spirit of, okay, well, we're all in this together and what can we do? How can we fix things or how can we approach things differently? And how can we keep this in mind to make the team stronger and our collaboration stronger? And I think everyone really on the team that works with ISA appreciates that tremendously. Yeah, I imagine those multiple touch points make a really big difference. That's very different than teammates whose only touch point is the stand-up meeting where you talk about the bugs. That makes for a a very different relationship. Issa, what do you like about working with Andrew? Well, I mean, there's a lot of trust there. From the beginning, Andrew has really taken on a role of mentor in a lot of ways to me, just especially in terms of strategic things, understanding how to approach things that are particularly complex and difficult. Yeah, I always feel like he has my back. And just with the development team in general, they're fantastic. I've been working with some of the same developers for this entire seven years, which is kind of amazing. So the long-term like institutional knowledge that Kalamuna has about our business and our site is so valuable. I feel there's a lot of trust there and I feel like I'm part of the team. I do a lot of stuff, but I really rely on Kalamuna to save my bacon if I make mistakes, (laughs) you know, too, when I'm doing work on the site. I just think that their aesthetic, their technical approach, how they run their standups, everything 
in how things are run works really, really well. That's great to hear. Thanks so much, Issa and Andrew, for joining me here on We Make the Internet. I'll see you online. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Make the Internet. If you like today's show, please give us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, and even if you didn't like today's show, you can still leave a review saying why. Feedback is important here on the internet. It's how we get better. Special thanks to Jeff Duba, Jeff Large, and Maggie Fisher of Come Alive Creative for podcast production work. You can find them at comealivecreative.com. I'm your host, Steve Persh. You can find me just about everywhere online as at Steve Vector. See you on the internet.